And in our turning to Psalm 50, we are entering into the courtroom of the eternal judge who has a pressing charge and pointed conviction to those who are his people and those who profess to know him. I've titled our study tonight, The Firm Justice and the Forgiving Mercy of the Sovereign Judge. Uh, the firm justice and forgiving mercy of the sovereign judge. In setting this psalm into four parts, I want you to notice with me first the sovereign character of God that is painted for us in verses 1 through 6. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 1, Asaph writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. The fire shall devour before Him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about Him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that He may judge His people." Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Selah. And the first thing that Asaph, the author of this psalm, confronts us with in this psalm is the indisputable reality that God is a judge. You will notice in verse 4, as well as verse 6, that Asaph specifically mentions that God, as judge, is active in overseeing the affairs of others and holding them to a specific standard of living. Within the first six verses, we find reference after reference after reference of God not just being a judge, but the judge. Verse 1, we find that He is the mighty God. He is the God of gods. He is the judge of all judges. And you will notice also there in verse 1 that Asaph wants us to understand that God, who is the God of all gods, is the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He is Yahweh, the supreme being of all beings. This is the judge who is speaking to us here in Psalm 50. Asaph says, The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken. The mighty God, even the Lord, who has all authority in heaven and earth, has made a judgment. The mighty God, even the Lord, who is all wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, has taken up his gavel and is about to make his final judgment. Verse 3. Verse 3 makes it clear that this judge shall come and shall not keep silence. And in his coming, he will execute judgment. Verse 4 announces that when the judge of all comes to judge, he will judge his people, those who are described as his saints, in verse 5. And I want you to notice that what is said here is synonymous 
with Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, when Peter says, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God, with God's people. So the truth being presented in these passages is the truth that when God judges, He always begins by judging His people first. The judge of all holds His people, those who truly know Him, to a higher standard than those who do not know Him. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that believers are judged for their sin. For Paul tells us in Romans that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But we do find in Scripture that God expects His people to live in accordance to His Word, and God will call His people before His presence to give an account of how they lived according to his law. Again, Paul says that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So the first truth that we are confronted with in this psalm is the soul-stirring, sobering truth that the creator of all things is the eternal, holy, perfect judge who knows all and sees all. His eyes are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. All things are naked and open unto the one with whom we have to do. And he expects all men, especially his people, to live in accordance to his laws and his ways. While he sits on his throne ruling the affairs of this world now, the Bible makes it clear that there is coming a day when this judge will make a final judgment. There is coming a day in which all will stand before him and will give an account of their lives. So this is truth number one. In verses one through six, we are confronted with the sovereign character of God. God is judge. He is the judge. He is the sovereign judge who knows all. And then turning to verses 7 through 15 in the second section of the psalm, we find this sovereign judge has a specific charge against his people. Verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Now did you catch the specific charge the God of Israel has against his people? It can be difficult to spot at first, but once you see it, 
you will see the progression of the judge's sentence against them. There in verse 8, the judge of Israel says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. And then in verse 9, the judge says, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. Now, it's important to stop here and recognize the fact that the bullock and the he-goat were principal creatures used in Old Testament sacrifice to God. So what God is saying to the Hebrew people is essentially this. You are offering sacrifice to me just as I commanded. And I'm not going to rebuke you for that, but I don't want your sacrifices. That's what God is saying. Your sacrifices are right and good in their place, but your sacrifices are not what is pleasing to me. God is saying, I don't want your sacrifices if they are not in harmony with true love for me. Look at the progression of what the judge says from verse 9 to verses 10 through 13. Verse 9, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. God is saying, I don't want more blood. I don't want more ceremonies. I don't want more fire. Why? Because he says, I own all the animals of the earth. They belong to me already. I already have them. So the argument is, It's not the animals, it's not the sacrifices that bring God pleasure. God is saying it's not your heartless outward ritual that I have required of you. What I have required of you is sincere love that obeys from the heart. And this truth is confirmed in verse 14. As God, through Asaph, says, offer unto God thanksgiving. There's the contrast. Here they are offering bloody sacrifices to the Lord, just as he required and commanded. But God is saying, I rather have the offerings of thanksgiving that pours from your heart. So in other words, it's possible to offer physical sacrifice to God without heartfelt thanksgiving. You see, God doesn't want a physical sacrifice that is given with an unthankful heart. God wants a spiritual sacrifice that is given with a thankful heart, a heart of appreciation, a heart of sincerity, a heart of love. Offer unto God thanksgiving. And the psalmist goes on and says, pay thy vows unto the Most High. In other words, obey Him, worship Him in spirit and in truth. Verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Now notice the personal relationship that God is desiring with His people. Notice the personal communion that God is highlighting through these words 
God does not want their heartless rituals. He wants their hearts. He wants them to fear him. He wants them to trust him. He wants them to commune with him. He wants them to worship him in a way that is pleasing in his sight. Let me just pause here and have us know that this one message is one of the main themes of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. This rebuke given in this psalm is a common rebuke uttered by God. We not only find it here in Psalm 50, if you look over to Psalm 51, we find it alluded to by David in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Next week in David's psalm of confession to the Lord, David says, for thou, speaking to God, thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Wait a second, God commands sacrifice. What is he talking about? Keep reading. Thou desirest not sacrifice alone, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering by itself. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do you see the contrast? Do you see what God wants of his people? God didn't want David to continue in adultery while continuing in his religiosity. God wanted David's heart. And so in repentance, he prays, Oh Lord, I understand it's not the outward man and the outward actions that you are calling me to give way to you, but it's my heart. And then you know the famous rebuke of Samuel to King Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken, to listen, than the fat of ram. And then God, through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, says to Israel, to the people of God, God, through Isaiah, says, To what purpose are the multitudes of your sacrifices? God, to his people, says, I'm full of the burnt offerings of the rams. Go back and read Isaiah 1 sometime, and you will see that God says to the people of Israel, I'm actually nauseated by all these sacrifices. It wasn't their sacrifice God was wanting. It was their heart. This very rebuke is the rebuke Jesus charged the Jewish nation with, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes. Many in Jesus' day were faithful to observe the Sabbath. They were tithing, they were praying, they were fasting. They were striving to keep the law of Moses, yet they lacked one essential element. What was it? This is our sermon from Sunday night, Matthew chapter 22, you remember? What was it that they lacked? Loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, they were busy being religious, but they lacked a heart for God. 
So I'm persuaded that we ought to pause and take serious consideration of the fact that if this is a stern rebuke that God has repeated throughout His Word, if this is something that we are tempted to be guilty of, this is something that we need to remind ourselves of often. It's possible to do all the right things biblically and miss God. Let me say it again. It's possible to cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's theologically and not know God. It's possible to pray, not focusing our attention on God. It's possible to pray just uttering words, speaking to the wall. It's possible to read our Bibles only in an academic sense, just taking note of the facts as if it's some historical book. It's possible to go to church merely out of routine. It's possible to bring our bodies to church while we leave our hearts at home. It's possible to tithe and to go above our tithe and give money to the work of the Lord when our heart is not actually attached to doing God's will. It's possible, listen, it's possible to evangelize. Can you imagine this? It's possible to tell other people about Jesus Christ while our hearts remain cold toward Christ. So what God desires of us is not our tradition, not our rituals, not our outward practices, not our ceremonies, not our activities. God wants our hearts. Proverbs, Solomon says, My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. What does God want? Micah 6, 8. He wants us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. So going back to our text, here are God's people in God's courtroom doing the right things, doing what God has expected of them. They're offering sacrifices to God, but their hearts are not fixed upon Him. And specifically, their hearts are not fixed upon the sacrifice that foreshadows the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ. What were the purpose of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament? The purpose of all the sacrifices was to remind them of the Savior who would come and make sacrifice for their sin. But they missed that. So I'm saying it's possible to go to your Bible, to pray, to come to church, to hear the sermons, and miss Christ completely. You see, here were people who were, in essence, playing church while their hearts were out of tune with the head of the church. They had become lukewarm. They'd become neutral. They became half-hearted. So the judge of all the earth is testifying against them. They know better, so the judge is calling them before his presence 
first. And I submit to you that if we are going to reach this world for Christ, this is where the revival needs to happen. It needs to happen among God's people first. We need to get right with God before those who don't even have God's word and know God's word get right with God. Now turning to the third section of the psalm, in verses 16 through 21, we find that the eternal judge not only has a specific charge against his people, but he also has a stern condemnation against the wicked. Verse 16 says, But unto the wicked God saith, So he turns his attention from speaking to one group of people to another group of people, and the judge is now pronouncing a stern condemnation to those who are wicked. In other words, to those who are without grace, those who are hypocrites through and through. These are lost religious people. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are false prophets, false priests, who claim to speak for God. These are the proud Pharisees, the ignorant scribes. They profess to know God with their lips, but their heart is far from the Lord. The judge is saying, unto the wicked, God saith, what hast thou to do declaring my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in my mouth? In other words, what right do you have to call yourself a Christian? What right do you have to recite my laws? Verse 17, seeing that you hate my instruction, seeing that you cast my words behind your back, you want nothing to do with them at all. And the charge of the judge is this, you say that you are Christian, but look at your life. Examine your actions. When you see a thief about to steal, instead of rebuking him or exposing him, you've been willing to act with him. You delighted to take pleasure in his sin. And the same is true with the adulterers, the psalmist says. Out of one side of your mouth, you say you're a worshiper of the true God when your life shows that you are a habitual adulterer. Verse 19, you say you love God, but your mouth speaks evil against God, His Word, His ministers, His ways. You say you're a Christian, but your tongue demonstrates that your heart has not been changed. Verse 20, you sit around speaking ill against others. This reminds me of what James says in James, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. So the judge says in verse 21, these things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. There's the stern condemnation against the wicked. I can't help but think of Christ's rebuke as these words are spoken. Remember, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Why do you call yourself a good tree when the reality of your life shows that you're an evil tree? You say that I'm Lord. You go around telling others that I am Lord. You, by your association, have been connected to Christian things, but I don't know you. 
You're not my child. You are a habitual worker of iniquity who has no desire to do my will in sincerity and in truth. This is the judge's stern condemnation of the wicked. And if you're familiar with the gospel accounts, if you're familiar with the ministry of Jesus Christ and his teaching, you know that what the psalmist says here and what Jesus says in the gospels are one and the same. Jesus hated with a passion the fakeness and the phoniness of most Jews who thought that they were right with God but were lost as lost can be. And by the way, Jesus called it out bluntly just like the psalmist is doing here. So the judge of heaven and earth is calling it out. Here in Psalm 50, judgment is coming. The raindrops are falling. God's sheep are still entering into the ark. But there's coming the time when the door will be closed. And as each day passes, we are moving closer and closer to the final judgment. That's the theme of the psalm. The judge has taken up his gavel. The judge with a stern look in his eye is serious about spiritual things. And he's got his eye on his people first. And he's got his eye on the wicked. And the judge will judge. He sees all. No one will get away with anything. But before that day comes, you'll notice in verses 22 and 23, the judge's sympathetic call to repentance. This is the fourth section of the psalm. The judge's sympathetic call to repentance. So in verses 1 through 6, we have the sovereign character of God as judge. In verses 7 through 15, we see the specific charge that God, the judge, has against his people. In verses 16 through 21, we have the stern condemnation against the wicked. And then in verses 22 and 23, the psalm concludes with a sympathetic call to repentance. Look at verse 22. Now... God, the judge, says, consider this. Ye who have ears to hear, let them hear. Consider this, understand this, give serious attention to this. Ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright, will I show the salvation of God. And the meaning of the word suggests that whosoever approaches the eternal judge with a humble and surrendered heart, confessing and forsaking their sin, will be, listen, will be a beneficiary of his saving mercy. Whosoever will forsake their hypocritical ways will find forgiveness. That's the conclusion of the psalm. Now I want you to think about how gracious, how long-suffering, how patient the eternal judge is toward those who are guilty. Here the judge has been declaring charge after charge after charge after charge. 
Here the judge has been affirming the sinful ways of others and how others have wronged him and walked contrary to his law. Now the judge is offering mercy if they will acknowledge their sinful ways and repent. Do you know what we find here in verses 22 and 23? What we find is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel message is this. We are sinners. We are completely, totally sinful, unrighteous before God. We are lawbreakers. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We are guilty of thinking ourselves to be good when we are bad. And we try with all of our might to hide our sin by our religiosity. Just like Adam and Eve, we try to clothe ourselves in fig leaves. We try to make others think that we are good through our religious practices when the reality is, at home by ourselves, we are nothing but a depraved creature. We foolishly think that God must be pleased with us. God must owe us heaven because of the things that we offer. Well, we pray. We haven't gone to jail. We haven't done drugs. So God must be willing to receive us into his kingdom. In our blindness, we rest in our affiliation with Christian things. Like the Jews, many think they are good with God simply because they grew up in church. Or because they go to church faithfully now. When the reality is they are hypocrites through and through. But see the gospel truth. God the judge. Knowing our sinful ways. Knowing our hypocritical actions. Approaches us. And says. Come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Do you see, in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah gives the stern judgment, but at the same time, he offers mercy. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Put it in context. Jesus is speaking to lost religious people who are leaning upon their affiliation to the nation of Israel. He is talking to lost religious people who think that they can earn heaven by their prayers, by their circumcision, by their keeping of Sabbath, by their trying to keep the law of Moses. Jesus offers them grace. You come unto me and I will give you rest. And then John in Revelation. What is the revelation but judgment after judgment after judgment? Yes. We see the judge. Fire is in his eyes. The judge is going to judge. He's the almighty. He's the sovereign one. And yet, listen, John in Revelation says this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst, come. Whosoever will, let him take 
the water of life freely. Mercy and judgment. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? The gospel is all we like sheep have gone astray. We are guilty before the presence of the eternal one. We've broken his commands. We deserve his justice. Yet God in love sent his son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law of God and to take the judgment we deserve upon himself so that we might be set free. The one we sinned against is the one who has the ability to to declare us righteous. He alone has the power and the authority to grant us salvation through the merits of Christ. See, the eternal judge has every right. He has every right to send us all to hell for our sins. God would not be lacking in love, mercy, or grace if he sent all sinners to the lake of fire. God would still be good and just to serve justice. Yet, this judge offers us forgiveness in Christ. Christ became sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the offer of salvation. Before the final judgment comes, Before our day of death comes, God invites us to have all of our charges dropped, wiped away. If God should mark iniquities, the Bible says, who shall stand? He knows them all. If he should keep a list of all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, all of our wrongdoings, it's page after page after page. We're guilty. There's no way we can erase them. Put yourself in the courtroom. Let's suppose in an earthly sense that you went down Highway 62 driving 90 miles per hour and you were texting on your phone and as you're texting on your phone going 90 miles an hour, somebody goes across the crosswalk and you hit them and kill them. You've broken the law. 90 miles an hour on your phone, you hit someone and you killed them. Do you deserve justice? Answer, yes. Why? You broke the law. So you stand before a judge. And the judge presents you with the law that you have broken. And suppose you say to the judge, judge, you know, I'm really sorry. And to make up for it, I'm going to rake the yard of the family that I killed for the rest of my life. Every Saturday, I'm going to go to that person's mother's house that I killed, and I'm going to rake their yard just to make up for the crimes that I've done. Or we say to the judge, Judge, I'm really sorry. Can't you just let me go? The judge is going to laugh at you. No. You broke the law, you broke the law, you broke the law. You ruined the life of a family. You deserve justice. Now, this would never happen in an earthly courtroom. But suppose the judge says, 
You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You deserve years in prison, life in prison for your crimes. But rather than you suffering in that prison cell, someone has volunteered to take your place so you can go free. Now again, that would never happen on this side of earth. But that's exactly what happened in the merits of the gospel. Jesus Christ did nothing. Jesus Christ was the righteous one, the only one who's good. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. He became sin for us. And Christ is allowing to take our place so that we can go free. That's what the gospel is. So it's not your prayer. It's not your dedication that's going to save. It's only Christ that can save. This is John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So the final question is, where does the judge see you tonight? Where does he find us? Does he find us in Christ, loving him sincerely? Does he find us outside of Christ, delighting in sin, walking in unbelief? Or does he find us carelessly going through the motions of the Christian faith? It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Some of you come to church, and you daydream and think about everything else. Some of you young people need to think about this. This is the reality of all realities. The judge of the earth is as real as you are. It's as real as everything you see in this life. And you will stand before him one day. And it may be this week. This is not a game. This is reality. And if you die in your sin. It won't, be because, it won't be because the judge is cruel. It'll be because of your stubborn unbelief. If you die in your sin rejecting Christ, you get what you deserve. But if you turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the eternal judge, will receive you into his presence. So what will it be tonight? Receive him or reject him?